Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I head to What is Fine Art on the corner of Hollywood Road and Old Bailey Street to look at nautical charts, etchings of battles and two John Carey globes, among other exhibits that make up Jonathan and Vicky Wattis's 31st annual exhibition of the mapping of Asia. These include antique maps from the 16th to the 20th century and also include the Robert Neald collection of early charts and maps of Macau and the Pearl River. I caught up with both Robert and Jonathan to find out more. I started collecting maps of Macau over 35 years ago. I went to Macau for the first time, I think in 81, and fell in love with it. It seemed to me then, throughout the 80s and 90s, that Macau was always like Hong Kong, but 10 or 15 years previously. And it was a lovely, sleepy, quiet, beautiful place. And uh, I just thought it was a very nice place to visit. Then I saw uh, a map, which is in fact that one there, that's Nickel which I saw in the gallery of a friend of mine called Frank Castle, who had a, a, an art gallery in Central. And I thought, that just sums up Macau to me, because it's small, you can see the barrier gate going into China, you can see, in some good detail, the layout of the streets, and the chief attractions are marked, like the churches and the forts. And I thought, yeah, I can take Macau home with me, and there it is. <laughs> and then I thought, well, <laughs> there's others. And I went to Lamert's, uh, the auction house that used to be in Central, and found some uh, little ones which are, which are here also. And then it became a passion after that. And it became a passion for maps of Macau or maps featuring Macau. There's one here, for instance, which is a chart of the whole Pearl River uh, Delta, Pearl River Estuary in 1844. It features Macau. It's this tiny little bit here, but it features Macau and puts Macau into context because it's at the left-hand side of the Pearl River entrance, Hong Kong and Lantau on the right-hand side, and all the way up there you get Canton at the top. So that's how it developed, and I ended up with about 50 maps of Macau or maps featuring Macau. And, uh, you know, when you first went to Macau and you sort of fell in love with it in 81, why a map, not a painting? I think, for me, a map encapsulates the whole place. But a painting would give a very good description or a picture of that particular view. Whereas, for me, a map is the whole place on one piece of paper. Now, for me, there's a fascination when I look at earlier maps. Of course, you've got the, the whole issue of how those maps were made and the technology involved in those days, but also how uh, a place like Macau or Hong Kong gradually appears. This, this is by a Dutch cartographer called Blau. And you can see Hainan Island, the whole of, of uh, Guangdong as it was. Guangdong went all the way over the, uh, the coast to as far as Indochina. It's now Guangxi. But this is Guangdong province. And Macau is marked somewhere there in the... <laughs> it's a tiny dot in the estuary. So I'm stretching the point a little bit. But this is a map that features Macau. And this dates back to when? This is 1655. 1655. And what's the name of it? Oh, it's, well, the name's sometimes odd because they've got some sort of anglicised version of writing the Chinese name. So this is Kwangtung, but then it goes into Latin, Imperii Sinarum Provincia Duodecima. So it's the 12th province of the, of the Chinese Empire. Don't ask me what the first 11 were, but they're probably these up here. <laughs> There'll be a test later. But Blau did uh, impressions of all, uh, I don't know if it was 18 provinces then, it's 18 now, but all provinces then existing in China. And this is the Guangdong one. So, Jonathan, can you tell me a little bit about Blau? 
Yes, the Blau family were from Amsterdam and William Blau set up a dynasty of map makers and they produced arguably the most beautiful maps and they were beautifully engraved and beautifully hand-coloured at the time and uh, they became map makers to the Dutch East India Company which was an extremely wealthy organisation um, so they had very good patronage. They, they were very good because they produced all manner of maps from all over the world. Um, this particular one of Guangdong was from the Atlas Sinensis. It was the map Atlas of China based on Jesuit and Chinese surveys in 1655. One of the Jesuits called Martini, he took it to Amsterdam to the Blau family who were regarded as the best map makers of the time globally and uh, they produced this beautiful atlas of which this is one example. How accurate is it? Well for its time it was very it was pretty accurate but it wasn't really the age of science so there was a certain amount of artistic license and guesswork. You have to really get to more or less the 19th century certainly the late 18th century where things to become more accurate. So my understanding is then that in China at the time, Martini, who then does the map making and then passes it over to the Blau family, who do the art, or...? Martini was the messenger. Right. Um, there were a number of different Jesuits working in different provinces, and they were acquiring information as they went along. So they were acquiring, obviously, from Chinese sources, but it, within Guangdong, they probably also used Portuguese sources. Now, this atlas would have cost a fortune, I would imagine, at the time. Was this for geographers? Was this for uh, people who would use it for any form of navigation? Or was this for something nice to have at home? No, this, this wasn't for navigation. This was something nice to have at home and indeed for libraries, for scholars to learn about uh, the other side of the world, as it were, because this was a European um, production. But uh, no, you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't have used this for navigating. And this was... Atlas Sinensis, Chinese atlas. Yeah. yeah, so Atlas Sinensis, how many would have been made? That's a very good question, um, because when they first made it, it was a standalone atlas, and then it became part of a grand atlas, which the Blau family did, which was a number of volumes. As the first atlas, it would be published in the hundreds, but then if it was put into the big atlas, then, then that would have, each edition would have probably been three or four hundred maybe, something like this. And then it depends how many editions they did with the grand atlas later on. But uh, I, I don't know the precise number. That's interesting because also how they would have, when I think about just editing, when you just have a new edition of a book. Oh, sorry, you got that bay a bit wrong. Well, the number of bays is a bit wrong on this Yeah, one. I was going to say, oh, just fudge it. But um, looking at this, I mean, it's absolutely lovely. And also just um, the artistry. That, that goes around it. So, I mean, it's not just... I mean, we'll move on later to some that have got sort of anim big animals yes. in the sea and things yes. like that. But it is, uh, it's not just a map, it's a complete work of art, isn't well, it? Well, uh, yeah, Amsterdam was a, a centre of the arts. I mean, there, was, there were very rich patrons because of the, uh, the trade going on, you know, with the East Indies, um, the spice trade. Um, so people were getting very wealthy and they, they could afford to you know, pay artists. There were great painters working there and there were great engravers. So this is an example of great engraving. Is this like contours equivalent? So where they've got all I, the hills here? I, I guess they are equivalent, but they're, they're little mountains. Mm. I think that's saying here was a mountain range. <laughs> so we'll give pictures of lots of little mountains. I don't think there's any attempt of, of contours there. They would have concentrated on the coast because the foreigners would have been increasingly familiar with the coast, sailing up and down. They'd see an island, they'd see a bay. But one thing I, I love about these early maps, maybe not this one because there's a lot of guesswork, but this one over here from 1844, you can see the tracks of where the survey ship went and it dropped its plumb line over the side and this one was, was 10 fathoms, this one was 9 fathoms. So you can see exactly the track that the ship followed. 
And they, they looked over to the right and they could see an island, Lin Tin, very famous. They could see the headland here. They couldn't quite see into that bay, so they didn't put anything. It's just a blank. Oh, now the land comes again. It might have been a foggy day or a misty day or something. And then we get, get up to here, to Taishan Bay. And again, there's nothing. So they didn't guess. I don't know what's there, so let's put nothing. That's very honest of them. It is. Here, they were pretty sure there was a coast, so there's a little thin, weedy line here. But then, of course, the further up the river you get to, to Canton, the more clear it becomes. But I love this precision at the one, on the one hand of you can see exactly where the ship went. You can probably tell which way the wind was blowing because they had to tack this way. Then they tacked that way, and then they managed to go further north. So that precision against the total lack of precision, on the other hand, where there was, there's nothing because they didn't know what was there. So this is the Carte de la Riviere de Canton, that's from 1844, and that was done by the Depot General de la Marine. So this would have been for the Marine Department of France, so it's, it's actually a more of a marine naval kind of yeah. map as opposed to an artistic one. Uh, this, this is a more useful chart, I think, rather than a, uh, an artistic one. But then uh, there's a limit to how much use uh, a city plan of Canton would have been to a ship coming up here, unless the, the sailors, the captain, was intending to get out at Canton and go into the city. Heaven help them if he did, because that was a bit of a dangerous thing to do. But up in the top right, you see a fairly detailed map of Macau, which looks very similar to the first one we saw over here. Of course, Macau was Macau, and each year that went by, they got more and more accurate in, in um, uh, depicting it on maps. Well, I would have said, uh, you know, with the Portuguese, I mean, they, they must be starting to depict Macau, what, in the 1500s? Yes, that's when they went there, in the mid-1500s. The earliest one I've got, which, which in fact isn't here, um, it's one of the few I, I decided to yes, I was gonna keep that. for yes. myself. <laughs> that, was, oh, that was a difficult yes. decision. Yes. I'm so fortunate here in Hong Kong, I've got a study with an enormous wall, and it's completely covered in maps. I love jigsaw puzzles, so I got them, cut them out, and sort of fitted them together, so the wall is completely covered, or was. Most of them are now here. But one I kept was from the uh, early 1600s, and it looked like an aerial view of Macau. Of course, it's ridiculous, because you couldn't have aerial views then. But I like that progression as well. Two here by Valentin, who's also a, a Dutch uh, cartographer. Here is Macau in quite detail. There, a little bit more detail. That's by the same cartographer, just a few years apart. But you've got the sea, you've got ships, you've got the horizon, you've got clouds. So that makes it, is, is it an aerial view? Is it a map? I think it's all three rolled into one. And uh, these again, are they um, for just for artistic viewing or would they have had a more sort of marine or even military use? I don't think marine or military. Artistic, certainly, because they're beautiful things. The, the sort of atlases that Jonathan was describing just now, it's the sort of thing you'd find in the library at Downton Abbey and all these things, huge leather-bound books that have been beautiful. This one might have been of use to somebody going to Macau because you can see at the bottom there's about 30 different places pinpointed, which church, which fort, etc. So I think the use of this would have been maybe for people going there. They've got a chart of the place in quite a small piece of paper and everything's marked. It's like a tourist map, I guess. And um, another question, I mean, obviously in French you say carte, but um, is there a distinction for when something is, ignorant question coming up, when, it, when something is a map or when something is a chart? A chart, <laughs> okay, a, a map is generally uh, something that is either in an atlas or standalone and it is usually a, like an ordnance survey map. Um, and it's quite distinctly different to a chart. A chart is an aid to navigation. 
you can have these are generally nautical charts like this would could be used by navigators to, to to sail their ships so by this period the one that robert was talking about 1844 you've got the chart on this this uh, projection and you could probably buy other charts which had a you know a more focused projection with more detail so if you were going to canton you could get the one of canton which had you know more detail to find out where you wants to go and so so the charts are really important the only problem with the charts was that they went out of date within a year or two with all the shifting sands all those depths change and then they'd find another rock so basically charts were often thrown away because they'd reissue them every two or three years because they're just always changing we tend to do an annual exhibition like this and we've done it for this is our 31st annual show and we call it the mapping of asia and, and although we specialize on east asia we often have maps from other parts so last year we had a number of maps on tartary this year we have a particularly beautiful chart of assam and indeed maps and charts of singapore last year was tartary tartary What's that? That is basically North Asia and Central Asia combined, and it's the old name, which would be north of China and east of Russia. So it, it's Siberia, Mongolia, Manchuria. These areas is a sort of area called Tartary and Central Asia. It's a large area of of Asia, and we had a number of really interesting maps of that last year in the show. Yeah. What I'd like to also emphasise is the provenance of what is fine art, because this is in fact your. 31st mapping of Asia. Uh, yeah, I, I, like to, I like to remind myself how long we've been here and how many years we've been doing it, and it's the only way I can count. I lost count years ago. What we've got along here is a, a variety of maps, but also um, some battle scenes that we'll get onto. Yes, indeed. We, well, we have a number of maps this year of Southeast Asia, and the earliest map we have is by Abraham Ortelius, a map of Southeast Asia, and in this case it's called Indiae Orientalis Insularum Que Adjacentium Typus. So it's basically Oriental India and the adjacent islands, and it includes China and India and islands of Southeast Asia, including Japan. So it's quite a big landmass and sea mass as well, but it, it, it's, it's fascinating. In the top left-hand corner is the Portuguese coat of arms, because a lot of the information is based on early Portuguese reports. It was first published in 1570 in the Abraham Ortelius Atlas in Antwerp. It's wonderful because in the sea you have these wonderful things like a, a mythical whale spouting and seems to be attacking a galleon, and you have two mermaids looking at mirrors. I think this has some reference to Marco Polo in it. It's a very charming map. Well, underneath the uh, Ortelius map is this, this naval battle which is taking place uh, off northern Java and near Bantam and between the Dutch and the Portuguese and this battle took place in about uh, 1600, 1602 and it was the, a battle for the Spice Islands, if you like and this is where the Dutch were coming in and taking over from the Portuguese so the early days of the Dutch East India Company yeah, so this is an engraving. This is an engraving. It's extraordinary. I mean, you, it's, it's sort of, you can feel all the, all the destruction that's going on, really. There are so many ships at close quarters and so many ships in the distance, and you can just see the, the coastline of Java in the distance. But this was a battle for the riches of the Spice Islands. Wow, yeah. I mean, I would say you've got about 100 ships there. Indeed. And that was quite a feat for the engraver to put all those in. <laughs> and who won? The Dutch, and it became the Dutch East Indies, as we know. And this is one of the entry points, one of the battles that saw this come around. It's based on a, a painting that is in Holland, and this is a very scarce engraving, but it, it ties in quite nicely with the early Portuguese chart by Ortelius.
Yeah, looking at that, Ortelius, so the fact that you have these early charts, Portugal, and then also the Dutch. The Dutch, Holland, yes. um, Is sort of indicative of who's got the colonial power throughout uh, Southeast Asia at that point? Yes, absolutely. And then if we move to the side, we've got this small chart, which is the earliest map of Singapore. And in this also, there's a battle between the Dutch and the Portuguese. So lots of ships on it. But what they're indicating is basically the fleets and the different ships off the south coast of Singapore here. And this is by Theodore Debris. So this would appear in um, a book that the Debris put together called Les Petits Voyages, and it published in 1607. Uh, And this is another big battle up here. It's another (laughs) battle. I've interspersed just to (laughs) add a bit more spice to the the maps. This is a battle in Swaley, which is close to Surat. And it was a, a battle again in the early, I think it was 1612, between the Portuguese and the English. And this is the English getting into India. This is um, on northwest India, and it was a battle that took place between various galleons, and this is the early days of the English East India Company. Yeah, so you've got a fight for three days between two English East India ships and four Portuguese galleons and 24 frigates, it says here, in the mouth of the river leading to Surat, in which the Portuguese were beaten. This is an engraving again? Yes, This engraving was done in 1730, so it's a historical context. But in terms of the battle, it's one of the few remaining early documents on it. And also, one of the two big ships was the flagship of the British, which was called the Red Dragon, which was a very important early East India Company ship that came on a number of the early voyages they took to India. And this is the British getting into India. Tell me what the consequence of this battle is. Well, before this time in England, it's just recovering from the 16th century where, you know, there were lots of changes happening in England, but England and Britain was was a a relatively poor uh, country in Europe. But what this did was it opened up trade. The confidence with the Crown at the time to sponsor or to help or to support the East India Company and its ventures out east was guaranteed through the perceived victory. And so, you know, it's the it's starting of an empire, really. Yeah, you've got rigging, you've got galleons, you've got masts, you've got sails, what more could you want? And Gunpowder. Yeah, you've got loads and loads of billowing smoke yes, you? Yes. rolling across the waves. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> No, that's, that's tremendous. There's an awful lot of suffering going on there, but uh, yes. very dramatic. Yeah, but it's the beginning of uh, a whole new era. So, uh, and it's it basically, like the other ones, it's all about the spice, the spice trade and, and the wealth. And uh, so there was uh, all this wealth about to happen and uh, they were about to get into India and then further India and you know, East Indies. And, and, and then, of course, later on, Singapore and Hong Kong in terms of the British. And rightly or wrongly, Britain's uh, fortunes changed dramatically. They did indeed. Let's hope they don't go back to the poverty that they were in (laughs) in the the 16th century. And then, well, if we go along the wall, we have things like an early plan of Manila Bay, which is a beautiful engraving done in Holland. Another uh, Dutch engraving of the island of Formosa, which is with the coast of China. That's a beautiful engraving. And then further on, we have various maps of Southeast Asia, and we have an engraving of a, a ship in the Indian Ocean in a hurricane or typhoon. And it's lost its rigging and did it survive. You can see close up these huge waves and a really threatening sea and people, you know, at the back and hiding. It must have been a terrifying thing to be involved with the storms. And this is an East India Company ship we see here. And so the journeys across to China and to India were very hazardous. 
Yes, I was going to say, I mean, you know, when we think about the immediate communication, we now have GPS, all of those aspects, and uh, people would go off for weeks, months, and even if they didn't make it, the people back home wouldn't have known for, for many months. For many months, absolutely. That was part of the, the rigours of the journey were very hazardous, that's right. And um, so next to this, we also have an engraving of plan of the East India docks in London. This I've never seen, I've only had it the one time, and I bought it in London from a print dealer, but I just think it's a wonderful thing because it shows the import dock and the export dock, and it shows how you know the, the ships were loaded and unloaded, and basically they were on the Thames and next to the River Lee, and these boats would have unpacked their goods and been put on barges and taken up River Lee and onto a series of canals to be taken round the UK and also into London by the River Thames. And then this is 1836, and then I think shortly after this, the railway line came in close to it as well. So it's echoing the East India Company part of the trade, and this was the London end. As you say, transport is about to change, so it's uh, very much the docks at that particular moment. Very much the docks at that particular moment, yes. But then we have other things that come into the show, like this beautiful map was a chart of Assam. This was done in Germany by Berghaus, and this was a big atlas and a big project by uh, one of the top map makers of the day, and it, it never really got off the ground. They were going to be producing these charts on this incredible scale, incredibly accurately, and they were only printed in very small numbers. So we know that this chart, there was only about 500 or so printed of this particular chart. So it's really scarce. But what I particularly like about it is the detail of Bhutan. And you've got all these vignettes, views of Bhutan landscapes. And this is in the 1830s. And that country, not many people would have been to visit at that time. So this is a, a fascinating chart to look at. So this is Assam and Bhutan, and it's 1834, and so this was done by Heinrich Berghaus, so it's uh, basically uh, a map of Assam and its neighbouring countries. So Assam today is... Well, it's part of India, isn't it? Northeast India, but it borders on Burma and indeed Bhutan. And so Assam would have been by itself at that point? Again, East India Company. So the East India Company at the time would have had Bengal, and they were into parts of India. You know, India's becoming bit by bit colonised. The treaty that came about from that first battle scene in the early 1600s morphed into them going into India and, and taking parts, bits and pieces. So this is one of the last parts. Yeah. I'm talking with Jonathan Wattis on the mapping of Asia. So it's fine antique maps from the 16th to the 20th century. And this includes the Robert Neild collection of early charts and maps of Macau and the Pearl River. But what I find, actually, Jonathan, is as we go around, it's not just looking at maps, it's a complete history lesson. No, it, is, it is an absolutely <laughs> uh, uh, a complete history lesson. I can just tie you into a, little Hong, a couple of Hong Kong stories. So here's one, which is this very small map of China by someone called Alfred Adlard, and I've never seen it before, and I bought it in a fair this summer. And it's a map from the mid-19th century, 1850, with little vignettes. But what caught my eye particularly was at the very top of the map is a, a miniature perspective view of Hong Kong. And it's got Hong Kong at the top of the map, and this view of Hong Kong from the sea. Which I've never, and so I, this, this is a scarce map that I've never seen before, but it's, a, it's got a Hong Kong element to it. And this dates to? 1850. And then if we move over the other side of this print of uh, a, a, another battle scene in, in the... <laughs> You've got a lot uh, of battle Pearl scenes, they're great. This is, a, this is the nemesis in Anson's Bay. This is a first opium war engraving that's used a lot to illustrate battle scenes at that time. 
So this is taking place in 1841. It's a real um, kaboom moment. Yeah, so isn't a real it? kaboom <laughs> moment. And this nemesis is this steel paddle wheel steamer with its uh, with its rockets going off. But if we go to the other side of this battle scene, we have a chart of Palawan Island. And Palawan Island is one of the most beautiful of all the Philippine islands. Lots of flora, fauna, dive sites. It's charming. This chart was put together by William Thornton Bate between 1853 and 1855. And William Thornton Bate was a hydrographer, a map maker, and a, a captain, and then a commodore captain in the Royal Navy. And William Thornton Bate ends up being uh, killed in Canton in 1856, which is very sad because he'd spent most of his time out on the China coast mapping Palawan over a two-year period. But so how did he get killed? Well, it was a battle scene in Canton, and he was killed in battle. But if you go to St. John's Cathedral, and you go out the doors of the main doors of the cathedral, you turn right, and on the right, there is a big plaque for William Thornton Bate, and it tells you about the story, and uh, that is the man who produced this map. Ah, interesting. Yeah. This Bate hydrographic chart, who would it have been used by? So the um, information would have gone back to England, all his drawings, and it would have been published by the Admiralty. So it's the Royal Navy who had access to this, but it would have been the most accurate map of its time of this island. And there were so many soundings and so many coastline details. So it would have been used by the British Navy, and then if the Spanish had been able to get hold of it, they would have loved to use it because it was their territory at the time. And then imagine later updates. This is first published in 1856, but this particular chart has corrections to 1865, so elements are added into it. And you can see it's pretty grubby, so it's been used. Yeah, uh, I like that. That's, yeah. It's been actively used. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah, so this has been handled, this has been rolled up, it's been put out on the ship bridge. Yes. I, I like that element yes. about it. This is not just um, yes. something to stick on a wall. And also, it, if you go to the south, you, you get the north coast of Borneo. And so um, around this time is, is the period where Raja Brook was in, in this part of northern Borneo. So there would have been a number of ships involved with northwest Borneo and also this area and all sorts of adventures, piracy and uh, independent kingdoms. The Sulu archipelago wasn't far away. There were all manner of stories going on with different parts of that world. You know, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Now, alongside the hydrographic charts, other forms of charts and maps and battle scenes, of course, you've also got a couple of globes. The Carey family. John Carey, very, very famous English map maker, walked across England with a wheel measuring it. I think he was probably involved with setting up Ordnance Survey and things like this. He was, he was an amazing map maker. Was, he was born in the mid-18th century and then in the early 19th century he's producing maps and atlases of the world and he has two brothers that work with him and his son that works uh, with him as well. So these two globes, you've got the terrestrial world and the celestial world. The celestial world is the heavens. So you've got the zodiacs and you've got the, the, the heavens charted. So these would have been in a library and they are coloured globes. One of them is dated 1821 and I think the other one's dated 1819. However, if you look closely, the globe gauze, they're engraved on these gloves, which are sort of elliptical shapes. On copper, done on copper, and then they're all stuck on. But the paper watermark that's on them is Watman, 1830. So what you have is basically globes that were done in the Georgian period, but printed uh, William the Fourth. 
So that's an English king. And these are original wooden stands with compasses at the bottom. They are very beautiful. This is sort of furniture, if you like, but of a very uh, sophisticated nature. And you could spend ages on these. I mean, if you started asking me technical questions on the celestial world, I would get very lost. <laughs> You're not into quite that sort of mapping. Well, into that detail. You know, I mean, it's extraordinary for its date and its period. What information, how, how knowledgeable people were. Where did you find these? These I bought at Olympia, which is in London, and it was actually a book fair there uh, a few years ago. And then I traced them down. They'd been bought a few years before in an auction. So they do have a certain provenance. But John Carey is well known as a, as a globe maker. And I'm a fan of his work anyway. So I, I've always wanted a pair. So at least I've had a pair in my <laughs> lifetime of Carey globes. <laughs> my thanks to Robert Neild and Jonathan Wattis talking there on the current exhibition at Wattis Fine Art, the 31st Annual Mapping of Asia, which is on show until Saturday the 5th of October. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.